Today, we bring you Jason Greenblatt, Unplugged, as a special assistant and special representative for international negotiations in the Trump administration, Greenblatt was a key negotiator and architect of the momentous Abraham Accords. For three years, Greenblatt had an open door to the inner sanctums of top leadership and royalty in the Middle East. He very candidly shares with State of Tel Aviv his experiences and impressions from that extraordinary period and up to the present. Stay with us as Jason Greenblatt speaks about the Donald Trump who he knows so well and admires deeply and how this commercial real estate lawyer from Teaneck, New Jersey was instrumental in redrawing the map of the Middle East today and into the future. The third anniversary of the signing of the Abraham Accords has just passed and the Middle East is emerging as a regional economic superpower. And this is just the beginning. I'm Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel, and today, a true Tel Avivian, living in the awesome state of Tel Aviv. Stay with us. Jason Greenblatt entered the White House by his own admission, somewhat unschooled and quite disinterested in political life, and found himself at the epicenter of one of the most change-oriented American administrations, certainly in modern times. As he quipped at one point in our lengthy discussion, President Trump broke China. You gotta love the double entendre there. As in, President Trump was prepared to shatter the fine porcelain dinnerware if it was necessary to renovate the room. Meaning that President Trump was a man who was not hidebound by convention or the way things are because that's how they've always been. Trump was an iconoclast. And in order to recalibrate ossified positions in the Middle East, someone of Trump's nature was probably exactly what was needed. Someone who really was willing to break the China. The rules be damned. I have to admit, I have long admired Jason Greenblatt from afar. To me, he seemed to have this Zen quality about him. Very controlled, measured in his careful choice of words, and beautifully articulated thought. And of course, his media exposure when he was in office was very limited, by design. But that, of course, enhances mystique. As I prepared for this interview, I read very carefully his memoir of his time in office. His book is called In the Path of Abraham, which I recommend highly. He expresses very complex thoughts and, most interestingly, personal observations so elegantly. As you will now hear, his writing skill is matched by oral eloquence. Jason Greenblatt, good morning. Thank you so much for making time to speak with State of Tel Aviv today. Thanks. It's a real pleasure to be with you. We have a lot to get through. I just finished reading your book, and I have to read the whole title because it's a humdinger, Jason. In the Path of Abraham, How Donald Trump Made Peace in the Middle East and how to stop Joe Biden from unmaking it. You didn't have anything else to add? You sure that's enough? I'll tell you a funny story about that subtitle. Not my idea. It was my publisher's idea. I don't think I've even ever said this publicly. It's not my style, right, to say that about anybody, Joe Biden, even if I disagree with his foreign policy. But funny enough, as I've watched things unfold from when he took office until now, I think the publisher had it right. He read in my book the fact that I was worried about the next administration, now the current administration. And in fact, President Biden alienated the region. He alienated Israel. I'm not saying he's anti-Israel. That's certainly not the case. But he's done things with respect to Israel, with respect to the Palestinians that I think are a big mistake. He alienated Saudi Arabia big time, even the United Arab Emirates a little bit. And I think over the months, over the passing months, he realized he made a big mistake, at least with respect to Saudi Arabia. So then you saw him go to Saudi Arabia, do a fist bump with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, essentially beg for lower oil prices. Now, thankfully, he's working on this potential peace with Israel and Saudi Arabia. We'll see, and maybe you'll want to talk about that a little bit. But he did an about face. He went from saying he's going to make Saudi Arabia the pariah that it is to understanding that he has to respect Saudi Arabia. 
understand. He does respect Israel, but he's interfering too much in Israel. He, I believe, mistreats and has mistreated Prime Minister Netanyahu. So in the end, while it's not my style to have that subtitle, I think the publisher actually called it correctly. It certainly injects controversy from the get-go. And publishers, of course, love that. And we'll get into, as you indicated, we'll get into what's going on in the region today. I do want to go back and deal with things somewhat chronologically, because some of our listeners may not be as familiar with you as I am and your quite extraordinary career. And I think they really need to understand the man behind the book as well. You write early in the book about your career at the Trump Organization. You were a commercial real estate slash deal lawyer, correct? Correct. I started at a big law firm, then was recruited to Trump, and I spent 20 years before the White House working for him. Based on your description, and I didn't even need you to describe it in the book, that you worked very hard. So you had this quite brilliant career with the Trump Organization. You were involved, as you described it, quite peripherally, if at all, in the presidential campaign leading up to the 2015 election, a kind of impromptu Middle East slash Israel advisor. Is that correct? Yeah, for two reasons. Really, number one, I still had my day job, and my day job got harder because not only were we still doing business, but I had to prepare the organization for a hoped-for win of Donald Trump. Of course, we didn't know what would happen, but we needed to prepare for it, and that took a lot of time. The second thing is, my wife and I were just not political people, and frankly, we're still not that huge in terms of being political people. So I didn't really have any interest in joining the campaign in any meaningful way. What I did have an interest in, of course, is Israel, and I was very privileged to have him ask me to be an Israel advisor, a top Israel advisor, together with my friend David Friedman, who later became the U.S. ambassador to Israel. But I also felt I wanted to tell Donald Trump's story to those who would be interested in voting for him, Jews, evangelicals, Republicans, and others. I thought there'd be very few people in the world who could tell his story the way I was able to tell his story as somebody who worked for him very closely for 20 years. I think that's probably correct because I've read an awful lot about Donald Trump, but I've never read an account like yours. And I don't want to characterize it, but it is sympathetic. Sympathetic in the sense that you knew and know the man, the real guy, I'm going to assume. So there's all kinds of stuff that we hear that's quite incendiary, that's provocative. And you're like, sorry, not a lot of drama behind the scenes. We worked really hard. He was hugely respectful, very smart, and I had a great career. That's my takeaway. No, it's a great summary. Look, I'm not going to sit here and defend every tweet. I disagree with some of his tweets on Truth Social, every statement he makes, how he conducts everything that he does. But he was an amazing boss. I thought he was a great leader. I think he will make a great leader again if he's elected again. And I think people fail to realize two important things. Number one, there's a tremendous amount of media manipulation, whatever side of the aisle you're on, right? The media is interested in hot takes and in headlines and their agenda. So they portray Donald Trump a certain way. They seize on certain sound bites, and that becomes the story. And they're unwilling or unable to actually show the full picture. I might say things my wife and kids get upset about, right? Does that define me? No, it doesn't. There's a lot to Donald Trump that just unfairly inappropriately, it doesn't get shared. I'm not saying don't cover what's happening, the four indictments, January 6th. I get all that. But cover it from a widespread angle, cover it more deeply, cover it from all sides so people can learn more deeply. The other thing I think that people fail to understand is, and I've met a lot of political leaders are human, right? They say the wrong thing from time to time. They act a certain way. I would rather have somebody like Trump and there may be others like him who are willing to speak openly and honestly and off the cuff so I could really understand and listen to what's on their mind and in their heart, as opposed to a practice politician who speaks in very careful sound bites. Even if you take President Biden, I'm going to try really hard not to be political on the show. This is a story that might sound political, but it's not. There was some press about him using the F-bomb, being very strident with some people. I can't remember if it was his staff or someone else behind closed doors. He does that too, right? So he may come across as being grandfatherly and nice and kind and warm and generous. And I don't know him personally. So I understand, to be honest and to be intellectually honest, I can only go by what I see in the media. And assuming this story and others like it are true, 
behind closed doors, he might be different sometimes, as all human beings are. So I think people who want to attack Trump give him a bad reputation. And frankly, he sometimes gives them the weapons with which to do it. But I only had huge positive experiences working for him and with him. So that segues beautifully into the day when you are asked to come to Trump Tower and you sit down and he says, Jason, I'd like you to join my staff at the White House, which was a real life changer for you. A real life changer. Look, my wife and I, because we weren't political, we would do things like watch that show, The West Wing, throughout the campaign, just to get a sense. It's a great show. It's an old show. It's a show. great show. I love yeah. that show. And after each episode, we looked at each other. We're like, yeah, even if he wins and even if he asks you to join, there's no way you're going to go to Washington. What a place that is. But then he called me in and he asked. So what happens? And I blurred out, of course, how I'd be honored to do it. And in the back of my head, realizing I hadn't even asked my wife and kids about it. But I can tell you both how unbelievably thrilling the question was, giving that answer. And then after that was a Friday afternoon, after discussing it with my family, going back on Monday morning and committing to do it. Because while I wasn't prepared for what Washington would be like, and the media and politics, and you think politics are bad here, then going on to play the role that I played, I look back and say, how privileged, how blessed was I to be able to play a role with this amazing team and these amazing leaders to try to improve the world. There was a higher power was smiling on you for a few years there. (laughs) Really. So you also described, so you go through this really quite dramatic, exciting, life-changing moment, and then you're in the mosh pit, so to speak. You're in the muck. And when you went in, your role was quite loosely defined. But it sounds to me, and also obviously watching you in real time in the real world, that you were working very closely with David Friedman, who you've already mentioned as Trump's appointed ambassador to Israel, and Jared Kushner, who is a family member, but also special advisor in the White House. But the three of you formed this little troika, if I can put it that way, to manage a Mideast peace process. If I asked you today how to define your role, what would you say? You're right in pointing out it started wide because we didn't know where there would be traction. They chose a new title at the time, Special Representative for International Negotiations, because they weren't sure if the Israeli-Palestinian and Israeli-Arab peace efforts would yield fruit early on. So they wanted to keep me in reserve as somebody who had done 20 years worth of transactions for President Trump and Donald Trump, someone who we had trusted, someone who we knew could understand how he thought what he wanted to accomplish. It was better that way, but we gained traction really early on. So we did form this troika, as you say. First of all, we had Jared, who led the team, amazing guy, great strategist, always calm, cool, collected, unbelievable optimist, by the way. You can imagine we had many low days and tough days and nights and cool as a cucumber. You could walk in, give him the bad news, and right away (laughs) he has this thoughtful look and figures out how we're going to make it better and bigger and all that huge optimist. So David and I overlapped on U.S.-Israel policy, of course, with Jared. Jared and I overlapped on U.S.-Arab country and Israel-Arab overtures, if you will. Avi Berkowitz, who later on took my role after I left three years later, was also part of the team and some others. So I guess if I had to summarize it, it was helping to establish U.S.-Israel policy, U.S.-certain Arab countries, in particular the GC policy, and seeing what fruits we can yield, either from the Israel-Palestinian peace process, which ultimately failed, as so many others before us did, and potential Israel-Arab peace, which actually bore fruit and later became the Abraham Accords. Extraordinary. And I lived through it, of course, on the ground in Israel. And when that moment came in August of 2020, we were all gobsmacked, not just regular folks on the streets in Israel. I think people who are also very plugged in. I want to go back again, though, to the beginning. You're appointed, you go to Washington, you get your little spare one-bedroom apartment, and you get to work. And I loved how you said the media referred to you guys as the real estate guys. Well, the real estate guys and the what do you three Orthodox Jews know about the Arabs and making peace with them? That was actually my favorite. And I'm sure that there was some spillover of that attitude into career public servants, as we call them in Canada. 
the White House staff, the State Department staffers. And in fact, you told one story about one conversation at the time. And that person was just really adamant that you can't do this. And there's a policy document and it sets out all the reasons why. And you said, hey, great, show me the document. Person went away, didn't come back. And then a few days later, you said, how's that document coming along? Have you located it for me? And they somewhat sheepishly, as you describe it, say there really isn't a document. It's just what everyone says. Yes. And there was an event at the city of David in Jerusalem, Israel. It was the opening of the pilgrimage road, which is the road that leads from the Shiloh pools up to the Temple Mount. It's been under excavation for many years. It's really been open for a while, but there was a formal opening ceremony. And the way the ceremony went, somebody covered the opening with a paper mache wool and handed out sledgehammers to myself, David Friedman, and others, Senator Lindsey Graham, Sheldon and Mary Madelston, and others. And we swung our sledgehammers at this paper mache wall, just somebody thought it would be a good visual. And it was, by the way. What happens after that? The press goes wild, and the headlines read essentially Greenblatt and Friedman destroying Arab homes in Silwan. So Silwan is an Arab community that's adjacent to the city of David, not above the city of David, certainly not above that opening. But some of the press decided to make it seem like we were actually undermining the real estate in Silwan, the Arab homes in Silwan, when it was nothing more than a paper mache wall. So I went back to the White House after that trip, because besides those headlines, there were also quotes from the late Saab Erekat, the Palestinian's chief negotiator, and people like him who were saying that we, David and I and others, were Judaizing the city of Jerusalem, as if Jerusalem has no Jewish history and we were making it up and trying to create it. And that's when I said to my colleague, who was originally from the State Department, but on the National Security Council, I would not say he was anti-Israel. He wasn't. I wouldn't say he was pro-Palestinian. But he was, let's say, if I'm considered on the right, he's considered on the very left. But a thoughtful guy, smart guy, knew the history of the conflict well, had his own opinions. So he was the best guy for me to say, look, I've been here now. I think at that point, it was two, two and a half years. I have yet to see a piece of paper that says that East Jerusalem belongs to the Palestinians. Tell me where the origination of that idea came from. And that's when he looked sheepish, didn't come back to me, came back to me and said, look, there is no treaty history document, anything like that says it, but somebody said it years ago. And it's just one person says it, then the next person, and now it's gospel, right? It became the notion that the Palestinians would always have all of East Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount, the Western Wall, all the holy places to Jews, not just to Muslims, it would be their capital. So I said to him, look, thanks for being honest. Thanks for telling me. At that point, Nikki Haley had already left the UN. She did an amazing job there. I said, I want to go in front of the Security Council because I do speak in front of them now that we have this gap in ambassadors. And I want to tell them that. So please prepare a speech for me that says exactly what you told me. He wasn't very comfortable with the idea, but he was always cooperative. Came back a few days later with a speech. I told him to make the speech a 12 out of 10. Not surprisingly, he came back with less than that. I was expecting a 2 out of 10. Truthfully, he came back with a 6 out of 10. I moved it to a 10 out of 10. We negotiated it down to an 8 out of 10. But imagine a representative from the White House going to the Security Council and saying that just because the Palestinians aspire to have a capital in East Jerusalem, that doesn't mean they're entitled to it. It's what they want. It's what they demand. It's what they believe they're due. But it isn't gospel. You can imagine how that speech went over in the Security Council. <laughs> Not very well. Yeah, that must have been one of your less fabulous days. But I have to say that whole story really resonated with me because when I was in office as the Canadian ambassador to Israel, um, having been appointed by Prime Minister Stephen Harper, I encountered that kind of resistance and adamance so frequently. They'd look at me like, what are you talking about? And I would ask for justification. I would ask for proof. I would ask for something more than them telling me this is the way it is. Actually, it's not the way it is. But our foreign affairs public servants had very similar, very hard-baked views probably to what many in State Department had. But I think in Canada, they're even more hard-baked and intransigent. Definitely not positively disposed towards Israel or any, quote, Israeli slash Jewish narrative. The resistance was really quite intense and unceasing. 
did you feel that you encountered the same kind of resistance or was yours more kind of sporadic and episodic? So I definitely encountered it all the time, but I have to give credit where credit's due. And I do write about this in the book. I think it made me more knowledgeable, made me more convinced that our approach and our arguments were correct. So we would have many, I don't want to say knockdown fights in my office, but strong disagreements, strong discussions, where they would come at me with the doctrine, the dogma, the note cards, the talking points, all the things you've experienced, I'm sure, as an ambassador. And then I would argue back. Uh, Sometimes David would join me, sometimes Jared. And in the end, I think we came to a great place, meaning it was their job to tell me all that they thought, all that they thought they knew, all that they thought was right. But at the end of the day, why I consider myself lucky is once we made a decision, they helped us get to where we needed to be. And I needed that. I needed the support. I needed their counsel. I needed their skills, their talent. I always joke that if David and I were left our own devices to write a peace plan, you can imagine what it might look like. So I think that they assisted me, got us to a better place, and were, I can't say happy because I don't know how they really felt, but more than willing and able and skilled at helping me do my job, despite our strong difference of approach. So in other words, what you're saying is they behaved and acted professionally as one would expect. Yes. And you're fortunate to have had that experience. When you begin talking about this monumental task that you're trying to wrap your arms around, how to identify opportunities, the geopolitical realignment in the Middle East, that really Obama inadvertently was the catalyst for that. The Obama administration, in my view, was very pro-Iran and alienated its traditional allies. But I love one of the sentences you wrote early on in your book was, why forestall regional cooperation in order to allow for a perfect Palestinian solution? That this regional cooperation, this idea of Israel making peace and having diplomatic relations with other nations in the Gulf and in the Arab world was hostage to this perfect Palestinian solution that will probably never be achieved. That was in a way your guiding principle. Am I right? Absolutely. Look, we realized early on that the possibility of coming up with a real full peace agreement with the Palestinians was very low. First of all, you have the deep division, hatred really, between the Palestinian leadership in Gaza, the terrorists, the Iran-funded terrorist thugs, and the leadership in Ramallah. So even if we came up with a peace plan that President Abbas said, you're a genius, President Trump. How did you figure it out? Where do I sign? You can't sign, right? Because nobody figured out how to deal with the 2 million Palestinians in Gaza and how to get rid of Hamas. There were other reasons as well. And we felt we have to stop allowing the Palestinians to have a veto card for Israel's integration into the region. It's not good for the region at all, and it's certainly not good for America. But it takes time to go through those conversations. It took multiple years to go through those conversations. The region, largely speaking, I refer to the region really as the GC countries, maybe let's minus Kuwait, let's say, who have a different approach to this. They are not anti-Israel at all. They want to figure out a way to support themselves, support Israel, be secure, let their next generation, of which they have this bulging youth bracket, they want them to have a totally different future than the future that they grew up with. And you could see they're not just dealing with the future by way of things like Vision 2030 in Saudi, UAE has its own version, Qatar is doing things, they're all doing things, right? But that vision will mean nothing if there's no security, if there's no prosperity. And they know deep down that Israel could play an important role in that, which is why they were willing to have these discussions, even if it meant that the Palestinians' veto card was taken away. That doesn't mean they were willing to abandon the Palestinians. They weren't. And by the way, I don't want to abandon the Palestinians. I would love nothing more if we could solve it. But we broke the two conflicts aside, and we said, let's see if we could solve one. Let's see if we could solve the other. Let's see if we could solve both. And I think we proved that separating the conflicts allows reality to set in and improves the lives of many people without holding them back by the Palestinian conflict. Are you concerned with what is going on in Israel? This is not just another crisis. This moment in history is considered by many to be the most critical and existential in Israel's 75-year history. 
State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com, all one word. Now, back to the podcast. You also shattered a shibboleth that had really prevailed in diplomacy for decades, which is we can't do anything until we solve the Palestinian problem or until we have some kind of two-state outcome. It was like, no, actually we can, as you've just explained, and here's how we're going to do it. I have to say, when I was reading, though, and you just mentioned Qatar and Kuwait, in your book, you wrote that the Qataris, you're convinced, you said, the Qataris have, quote, nothing against Israel and certainly not against Jews. I did stop and pause and reread that in its context a few times. Can you explain how you came to that view? Because Qatar is an outlier in the Gulf in many ways, and I was surprised to read that. Yeah, and I get that question a lot. And let's remember, I'm talking about Qatar from the time I was in the White House and after, not Qatar from 10, 20 years ago. And by the way, all the countries in that region 10, 20 years ago were different. So first, Qatar funds terrorism is a comment that I often hear. I saw no evidence of that. Qatar does fund Hamas. That's true. But they do that with the involvement of the Israeli government. And our view very much was, and I still share this view, that if Israel decides that it needs to spend its money on all the things it needs to spend its money on, primarily on defense, which it needs. Mm -hmm. And they're willing to allow Qatar to fund Palestinians in Gaza to keep the temperature down, to allow Palestinians to suffer less there. They're suffering deeply because of Hamas. People like to blame Israel, but it's purely Hamas. And if Qatar is willing to use their pocketbook, which is a very large pocketbook, to help the Palestinians, even though it's also helping Israel, it wasn't for us in the White House or me today to criticize that. The second thing is, I will tell you that I have always been warmly welcomed there as an observant Jew. Even today, when I go there, I went there with one of my sons for the World Cup, as an example. I wore my kippah. I had not only no animosity, I only had warm, welcome conversations. Imagine a dinner. This is with my family at a hotel on a Friday mm. night, out in the open, on a terrace in a hotel, singing Shalom Aleichem, making Kiddush, being clearly observant Jews, and only receiving positive welcome. At the end of our stay at that hotel, as an example, and these were not Qataris, these were expats who worked in the hotel, they came up to us, handed us a card in Hebrew, they use Google Translate, thanking us for allowing them to help us with our kosher and Sabbath needs and gave my daughter flowers. So the world that I see, and this happened after the White House, right? They don't need to do this to gain any favors, right? I'm a private citizen now. There's no upside to anybody to treating me differently. But the world that I see is very different. Maybe I'll end the conversation with one controversy that happened during the World Cup, where there were lots of news reports that Israelis were, or Israeli journalists were mistreated in Qatar blaming Qataris, right? I don't know, because I wasn't there, but I would, at the time these events happened, but I would say I'm 99%, if not 100% sure, those people who were disrespecting the Israeli journalist were not from Qatar. They might have been from Lebanon, they might have been from Yemen, they might have been from any country. I don't think they were Qatar. It's not in the nature of Qataris to challenge that way. And the journalists themselves might have been a bit aggressive, like sticking the mic in somebody's face saying, hey, I'm from Israel, that sort of thing. And right. I could see why that's not necessarily the best mix. But I do think Qatar gets a bad reputation for an unfair reason. Does that mean that there are no Qataris who hate Israel? No, I'm not saying that. There are Arabs throughout the Arab world, including in countries that have signed peace agreements with Israel or hate Israel. My goal in life is to teach them, those people, that everything that they learned about Israel and about Jews for decades is wrong. And I think Qatar is widely open to that willingness to have those conversations. 
And you don't feel that when you were there, even though you're a private citizen at that point, but don't you feel that you're still somewhat in a bubble? Everyone knows who Jason Greenblatt is in Doha, don't they? So it's interesting. I could go to different meetings, cities, have conversations where everyone knows me, and then I could walk into a room, including, by the way, in Israel, and somebody may say, Jason who, right? So it really depends. It depends how up on foreign affairs they are, how much they really follow things. I did an interview with an Israeli paper two weeks ago where I was talking about a story relating to Mar-a-Lago, a good story from many years ago, not the classified documents Mar-a-Lago story. The Israeli journalist asked me what Mar-a-Lago was. So there are actually people who live in a bubble and don't follow things that I was privileged to work on. But no, I don't think I get treated differently for what happened, especially in countries that aren't yet signatories to the Abraham Accords. I think that I'm careful when I walk around. Most of the time now, I do wear my kippah in Qatar and Saudi Arabia. There are certain locations I might feel a little less comfortable, but that's because the mix of people come from all sorts of places. And I'm not interested in having an encounter, say, with some Iranian agent. But no, I firmly believe, and I do this time and again, including with my family, that the world has changed so dramatically with regard to Israel and Jews. And shame on me if I don't try to keep pushing it forward now as a private citizen. The accomplishments of the Trump administration in the region were just extraordinary, unprecedented. We also live in a very different Israel today than we did when Donald Trump became president. You and I may characterize the current government of Israel differently, but there's no question that it's made waves. I live in central Tel Aviv, and it's been a very challenging period since the current coalition came to power. And I think that it's also causing some of the Arab countries in the region, in particular those with whom Israel has signed peace and diplomatic agreements, economic agreements, to look slightly askance. If I asked you to look at what's going on in the region in response to the Israeli government, the current coalition government, what would your take be? First of all, I'm the divisiveness pains me. I'm all for democracy, protest, and all that. And to be honest, the protests, as much as people pointed out in a negative way, the protests have been almost completely peaceful. I think the Israeli flag has almost been the hero of the protests. There are these great clips going around. There's one protesters for going up the subway escalator and against. I don't know how much that really reflects reality, but at the end of the day, I'm glad the protests are peaceful. But I think there's a lot of instigation going on all around. I think there are some who protest for the wrong reason. And I think the overall picture, both to America and to the region, is one of concern. I don't think America should be interfering with what's going on. Israel is a thriving democracy, and Israel will figure out what works for Israel. Those that are encouraging American interference are mistaken. But to get to your question specifically about the region, there are some, not countries necessarily that have signed, but others in the region, the broader Middle East, who are rubbing their hands gleefully and saying, Israel's on the way out. Somebody told me in Lebanon, there's actually a tracker of how many people leave Israel, move out of Israel. You could be sure they're watching the capital outflow. You could be sure they're watching companies move out and excited about that. But that's the fringe, in my opinion, of people who aren't necessarily in power, people who want Israel to be undermined. I think the leadership is watching it carefully and closely. They signed a deal with a strong, stable Israel. I think they still believe Israel is strong and stable, but they would be foolish not to be watching it carefully. And I think, I hope that Israel gets a handle on this. There are comments coming out of certain ministers that I think are incredibly unhelpful. I want to be careful because the same way I don't want people to judge Trump by a headline or a tweet. I don't want to judge these people by a headline or a tweet, but it's all I have to go by. You had, for example, the Minister of Transportation coming back from Dubai months ago saying she wasn't impressed with Dubai. That's a very unhelpful comment. In the end, I think they made up and there were some nice tweets back and forth, but ministers should be careful. You have the Minister Ben Gvir, who has been making some comments. The other day I saw him make some comments, which truthfully I'm confused because the press has been confusing. I watched the words. I listened to them in Hebrew too. They were reported as, if I recall correctly, his family's right to travel is much more important than Palestinian freedom, loosely stated. I don't remember the exact words. Then they walked back those comments to say something like, 
his life and his family's life is more important than Palestinian movement, which is not an illogical comment. The first version is, but the version that I heard, unless there really was editing of his comments in the media and slicing and dicing of the words, unhelpful. You have Minister Smutrich, who today chided America and said, we saw what you did in Afghanistan. Don't lecture us. America is Israel's strongest ally, even under the Biden administration. Whatever I might think of President Biden's comments or policies toward Israel, towards Prime Minister Netanyahu, that's a disrespectful comment. And if I was in the White House, I probably would have called then Ambassador Ron Dermer and said, Ron, what's going on here? Like, how do you think the White House feels or Congress or Americans feel when you have those comments? Now, I understand Israel is a real country and it's freedom of the press and democracy and all that. I get it. But I think ministers should be more responsible. They don't realize the negative impact they have on the rest of the world, including in the Gulf. I try to act the way I try to teach my kids to act, which is if you're missing information, don't judge. I can only judge by what I see. And I speak Hebrew, but I don't, I'm not reading the Israeli newspapers and I read the American newspapers. So I acknowledge that my judgment may be faulty because it's deficient. But I hear your point. Clearly, it seems I'm not deficient on this one. <laughs> that would be my suggestion respectfully. But there's an even more important incident that transpired in the last few days, which involves the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Ellie Cohen. And I expect that you've probably noted that, where he met last week in Rome with the Libyan Minister of Foreign Affairs. And it was a secret meeting. Reportedly, the Americans were involved in setting this up. Mossad, the Israeli government, many, many interests. And I'm sure that there were other countries in the Middle East. The preparatory work to set up a meeting like this must have been just beyond belief between Israel and Libya. And for some reason, Ellie Cohen chose to announce it to the world on Sunday. And the reaction, of course, has been quite strong. The Libyan foreign minister has been forced to flee the country. There have been riots in the streets of Libya. The Biden administration reacted as one might expect. What the heck is going on? This is amateur hour, and you've endangered not only any kind of rapprochement or potential rapprochement with Libya, but also with other relationships in the region. And there was an off-the-record Mossad comment that I read in one of the news accounts saying that the damage done here is irreparable. So again, you and I aren't in the room, nor are we on the phone calls, but standing back in Teaneck, New Jersey, and looking at what I will characterize as a debacle. How would you characterize it and how would you understand it? And you've been in those rooms, so you know how much damage something like this can do. Or is it just a complete exaggeration? No, it's not a complete exaggeration. I think I have limited knowledge on this, but I think the Mossad's characterization is probably accurate. And I'll tell you that I'll share a quick story with you, and then I'll tell you why I feel so strongly about this. There was an Israeli minister who came to visit me at the White House when I was there, who said, Jason, I want to teach you something about the media. You feed them information, things that they need that they can't get anywhere else, and you're going to get great press. You don't feed them information, you're going to get nothing, or certainly nothing good, maybe even bad. And I said to him, look, with respect, I'm here to do my job. I left my wife and kids back in New Jersey. I'm not here to get great press. And it's not only disloyal, but disrespectful to all my colleagues and the leaders we're working with to do what you're suggesting. And it's incredibly damaging to do. But I learned right after that meeting, that is how some of these politicians play the game. They do it here. They do it in Israel. Israel is actually notoriously leaky. So whether it's Eli Cohen, and I'm somewhat familiar with the story, not fully, or others, unfortunately, people put their own personal needs, wants, making a name for themselves ahead of the mission. Lots of people do it. I consider myself lucky that David, Jared, and I we're close friends. We weren't competing with one another. That's why nothing ever leaked out of our area, certainly Avi Berkowitz as well, and others who worked with us. And I think it's a shame. I think if you're going to go into public office, if you're going to go into public service, you're there to serve your country. Don't put yourself ahead of your country. And if you're lucky enough to have a meeting like that or any other meeting, I'm sure you partook in many of those kinds of meetings, keep your mouth shut. The media, of course, loves that. That's how they create stories. That's how they create headlines. That's how they, that's how they sell papers. But you don't understand the damage that you could do to really important events. 
you could have, in theory, damaged the Abraham Accords if people went around doing that. Because the people involved in those meetings have real concerns, as we now see fallout from this event. Yeah, this is quite something. And Ellie Cohen is not someone who I would describe as being an amateur. Smart guy. He's been around the block. He was formerly Minister of Intelligence. So there's just this really big question mark as to why he did what he did. And I suppose that we're going to see the fallout in the coming weeks, months, possibly years. This moment in history is considered by many to be the most critical and existential in Israel's 75-year history. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com. All one word. Now, back to the podcast. I'd like to ask you how you see some of the people with whom you interacted so closely for three very intense years. You said that when you entered the job, it was very clear that both Mahmoud Abbas and Prime Minister Netanyahu have very high expectations of you and the Trump administration. Do you feel that you fulfilled their expectations? Or do you think you disappointed them? I think we fulfilled them on Prime Minister Netanyahu's side, for sure. First of all, the Abraham Accords was an amazing achievement for him. And the fact that we got it done without giving concessions to the Palestinians, meaningful concessions, was an achievement for him. There's no question about it. I think on the President Abbas side, we failed. Did we fail because it was inevitable, impossible? There's lots of reasons we failed, sure. But I think he saw in President Trump a leader who was willing to break China. I don't mean the country. Completely throw out the rule book and set new rules. I think he was right on that front. I think where he failed is he didn't understand, even though I constantly told him and his advisors while they were still talking to us, because remember, after President Trump recognized Jerusalem as the capital, they officially cut ties. Yeah, we had informal, unofficial messages going back and forth. They weren't, we never really knew, did they come from President Abbas or not? It would be unfair for me to say he, behind closed doors, was still talking to us. He didn't. Mm -hmm. But there were lots of people who wanted us to talk. You can imagine how many people came through my office saying that they were going to tell President Abbas X, Y, or Z, or that he said X, Y, or Z. He did not realize that he had three people who were tasked with making peace, who Trump trusted immensely. Jared, his son-in-law, me, David Friedman, who was also extremely close to Trump. And we could have come up, and we did, I think, with a peace plan, come up with something that was different than the others had come up with. We could have tried to make something work. I'm not saying we would have succeeded, but I think he failed to realize the connection that it really had to an unusual president who was willing to do different things. And he didn't take advantage of it because once he cut us off, there was no going back. The messages that I used to get in the White House after he cut us off were, you need to give Abbas something to get him down the tree. Cancel the Jerusalem recognition. Say it doesn't really mean anything. Give them zillions of dollars. You can imagine the list of what I was asked to do. And I said, my job is not to get him to just come back in the room. That's useless. He's been in the room for decades now, or at least 18 years or whatever it is. His job is to bring his people forward and make peace and give them better lives. I'm not going to pay him to do that. So I think we disappointed him. That's a shame. It's a failure. It's not so much a surprising failure, but of course, it never feels good to fail. You shared a lovely vignette with your readers involving Saeed Arakat when he was receiving medical treatment in the States. And you had a private lunch with the late Saeed Arakat and his wife. And during that lunch, at some point, he said to you, Jason, you failed. I'd love you to tell that story about the photograph of this new grandchild and how you responded, because you've just again said, we certainly disappointed Mahmoud Abbas. We did not live up to his expectations. And you just said yourself, we failed. But that's not what you said to Saeed Arakat. Yeah, no, that's true. Remember, that happened before the other achievements that the administration had. 
that was just before the Jerusalem announcement. And he was recovering from a lung transplant. So I went to his apartment. His wife apparently is an amazing cook, but since I keep kosher, I couldn't have her food. It smelled really good. He ordered kosher food for me, which was very nice. Look, Saab Arakat and I are complete polar opposites on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There's probably very little that we agreed on other than we both wanted peace. He said when he heard that when I broke the news to him that we were going to recognize Jerusalem as the capital, that, you know, I'm going to go home a failure. And I said to him, I'm going to go home. I'm going to be with my wife and kids again. I'm going to make money again. And I, he had just had a grandchild, a new grandchild, and he had the picture there. And I looked over and I said, it's not only you that will have failed, but we will have failed or you will have failed for your grandson. And I think it meant something to him. I don't know for sure. And in the end, of course, they did cut ties, so we'll never know the answer. But I do blame them to a large degree for what happened because they were unwilling to come back to the table. They were unwilling to engage. They were unwilling to even read the peace plan. Now, did they read it in private? Probably. But they would say things publicly even before the plan was released. Their prime minister at the time would say, I hope the peace plan is born dead. You know, what kind of prime minister says that before you even see it? You want to take it, read it, criticize it, criticize every word you want. No problem. Come up with your own ideas and solutions and comments. Come back with every line annotated. I don't care. I have so much patience. I will sit and negotiate every word with you if you want. But they never even come back to the table. So while we failed in the sense that we didn't achieve the peace agreement we sought to achieve, I think they failed because they wouldn't even let us try to do it. You referred to Arafat's ghost as impeding Abbas from moving forward with any kind of real peace initiative or accord. I've always found Saeed Arakat to be a fascinating figure. And I want to ask the question, you make the point very clearly in the book that you know you don't want to speak ill of the deceased, which I understand. But what I want to ask is, do you think that Saeed Arakat basically functioned as Arafat's ghost? Was he a hardline, intransigent, no man? He was presented as a negotiator, as someone with whom you could speak. But his persona, public persona, was sclerotic, inflexible. And what you're describing in your book, very delicately and carefully, jibes with the impression I've formed of him from what I've read publicly. Was he a man of peace or was he a man of intransigence? There's no question publicly, the public persona is what you perceive is correct. And it's really what counts. So even if I could sit with him at meals, private discussions, and talk logically about a potential future, he didn't have that kind of flexibility. I don't think personally, he didn't want to achieve something. And I'm not saying he would have given on all the points or accepted our peace plan. We'll never know. But the problem that Palestinian leadership has today and for the foreseeable future is they were promised many things by their leaders, by parts of the world, Europeans and others. And it's very hard for them to go backwards. It a little bit goes back to the East Jerusalem speech that I made at the UN. If somebody tells you for decades, both your own leadership and the UN for that matter, that you're going to have your capital in East Jerusalem or all of East Jerusalem, depending on the formulation. They believe it's all of East Jerusalem, including the old city, including the Western Wall, including potentially the Jewish quarter. It's very hard to go back, back from that. How do you change that? I think you can. I think the UAE did. I think Bahrain did. I think Morocco did. I think Saudi is slowly doing it. But you have to be willing to do it. And there's no leadership among the Palestinians that's willing to roll up their sleeves and take on that hard task that other Arab countries have taken on and change Palestinian society to recognize what they were promised was false. There is a potential solution. It's going to be really hard to get there. But what you were promised is not going to happen. You raised the Saudi potential for some sort of peace agreement and normalization agreement, whatever you want to call it, between Israel and Saudi. And there's clearly lots of discussion. There's lots of contact between Saudi and Israel. It's no longer even secret. To what degree do you think that the constitution of the current coalition government may impair any progress? 
And if you wouldn't mind trying to also weave into that what happened with Libya, because I would see that as being a significant exacerbating factor. There are lots of obstacles to it. It's funny, I was in Saudi Arabia about two weeks ago when the Wall Street Journal story broke. And I read the headline, my son-in-law actually sent it to me. I'd just woken up. I read the headline, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And by the way, I want nothing more than President Biden to be successful. I think it would be amazing, right? But I thought it was a strange headline. And it turns out even the White House walked back and said that Wall Street Journal article wasn't quite there, wasn't quite accurate. But part of the challenge will be the current coalition government in Israel. And it goes back to some of the stories we told during the course of this interview. I think the Saudis will request out of Israel more, more concessions to the Palestinians. What those may be, I don't know. I don't have inside baseball on it. And I think it's going to be very difficult for Prime Minister Netanyahu to thread that needle. And the Libya thing is also part of the problem. I've had these discussions with some Arab leaders, even post-White House, and even pre-judicial reform protests, where they would say to me, how do we trust that what we're talking about will remain secret? And it's a valid question. And their job is to protect themselves and their country. And they don't want to find out that Israel is leaking or Israeli leaders or politicians or others are leaking. They don't want to see an article by Barack Ravid or somebody else with private secret conversations. And they are at risk. I think what happened with the Libya situation weighs heavily on their mind. Even if President Biden's team promises them secrecy, President Biden's team can't control Israel. And that's a shame. And I don't want to pretend for a second, by the way, that we didn't have that problem in the White House. There is a lot of leaking, and it's, I go back to saying it's incredibly damaging. And if any Israeli political leader or politician is listening to this, I plead with them, put the discussions and the process and your country first. Forget your own political career. You'll find other times to shine. Don't risk anything that might be going on in terms of leaking. That would be a real shame. I'm not asking them to compromise their principles. If they're against X, Y, or Z, localize don't give it up if you can't. That's your problem, but don't leak. It's always amazed me how every Sunday morning, Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu convenes the cabinet. He has the media in for the initial few minutes and he sets the agenda for the week. And then media leaves and they go in camera. And almost every week there is a recorded leak of what went down in that room on the Sunday night news. And I'm thinking, when you go into those rooms, we always had to put our phones in a box. You go in without a, who's recording? Like only in Israel do you get recordings of cabinet meetings and the most sensitive other meetings. Is Benjamin Netanyahu, what you're seeing today, the Benjamin Netanyahu that you're seeing as the prime minister of Israel, is he the same Benjamin Netanyahu with whom you interacted? Hard for me to say, because I'm not interacting with him now. I happened to run into him on a recent trip, I think in March, just... I was in the prime minister's office meeting somebody. He was coming in. So we exchanged pleasantries for about eight and a half seconds. And again, I do read the press, but I'm reading the English language press. Very hard for me to say. I think he's an incredibly skilled leader, politician. I think he's done amazing things for Israel. So I want to not judge him today with little information. I'd love the opportunity to sit with him and understand where he's at, understand where he's going with judicial reform, understand where he's at with Saudi Arabia. But very hard for me to answer because I have limited knowledge on what's truly happening. I think anyone who wants to judge a country and leaders needs to read the local language, local media to truly understand what's going on. As good as our newspapers might be, whether it's Jerusalem Post, Times of Israel, I certainly have my issues with Haaretz, so I won't. Or a newsletter like State of Tel Aviv. Or State of Tel Aviv, for sure. And I think this dialogue has been great because it opened up so many things that people don't understand or don't know. It won't be in a short form article. You've got to read, as you do here, you've got to read all the press, left to right, different thinkers to truly get a better handle on what's going on. And by the way, even then, you don't really know what's going on. Exactly. Even then, you only know maybe 5%. But I am someone who does read the local media, who watches local television, listens to radio in Hebrew, and I'm very plugged in, of course, to English language press. But I'm not going to let you off the hook that easily, Jason. So I want to try to rephrase the question. You're a very informed, knowledgeable observer. I assume that you're paying careful attention to domestic events in Israel. 
to what degree does this instability, this domestic widespread and very deep protest that is ostensibly related to judicial reform, but in my view goes much deeper, to what degree do you worry about the immediate future of Israel? Forget 10 years from now. Do you think this is just another kind of moment, another frisson in the Israeli complex, conflict-ridden, domestic atmosphere? Or do you think that something different is going on, something more worrisome? I think in the moment today, it's no different than what's going on in America, where both countries are facing tremendous challenges, tremendous divisiveness, attacks, unwillingness to talk, unwilling to listen to the other side, unwilling to understand. But I'm not worried for America and I'm not worried for Israel. That said, because your last, the last point you made in your question had to do with worrisome, I am worried. I don't think this is a flash in the pan. I think it's exposed a divisiveness that if not properly dealt with, and I don't want to say healed because it's not going to heal, but nurtured and attempted healing, I think it will lead to significant problems down the road. Far be it for me to advise Israelis on how to conduct themselves, but I would love to see, as I would love to see in America, better, more respectful, deeper conversations I always tell people that if I can travel the Arab world, including among Palestinians, and never have a fight with any of them, leave the room clearly understanding we disagree on many things, but either always with a handshake, a hug, a respectful goodbye, I think we could do it here in America. I think Israelis could do it. We're never going to agree on all these tough issues. They are tough issues, and we come at them from so many different ways, but we have to do it in a better fashion that's being done now, both in Israel and America. Yeah, I think that look, the divisiveness and the polarization in both societies is clear. I think there are many differences between the quality of those traits in America and Israel. But the major difference, of course, is that America is not faced with the pressing security issues that Israel is. We really don't have the margin for error. I certainly hear that point, the margin of error point, defending itself 100%. But remember, what we have today, we have Ukraine, we have Taiwan, we have China, we have Russia. We have so many issues going on in our country that, and while we could, you know, the White House can walk and chew gum at the same time, or certainly they should be able to, we're also heading into a new election. We have the cases against Donald Trump. There's so many big issues going on here. Our margin of error is getting thin, not existentially from a defense perspective necessarily. And of course, I left out one of the big ones, which is the Iranian regime and the threat that is. But it's not an easy situation here either. Jason, what are you doing these days? You've transitioned to the private sector. I'm assuming that you do not have any role on the Trump campaign. Is that correct? No role on the Trump campaign. How do you fill your days these days? I love what I do. I basically connect American and Israeli companies with countries and companies in the Gulf. The Gulf is on fire in such a positive way. There's so much going on there. People are extremely interested in it. People don't understand it. A lot of people think of the Middle East as so many bad things. They don't understand there are so many positive things that are going on there. I make partnerships between companies and countries, and it allows me to keep my foot in the ring, if you will. Most of my trips, I still always talk about peace, always talk about Israel. I continue to build those bridges. So I'm very fortunate that I landed in this sort of, I would say, business, if you will. I wish you every success going forward. Sounds fascinating. And I'd like to thank you for being so generous with your time with State of Tel Aviv. I know our listeners are going to learn a lot from your insights and your generosity of thought. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the great, smart, and not so easy questions. (laughs) No, no lobs here. But I held back on some of the super tough ones. I hope and expect that you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. In addition to being highly intelligent and thoughtful, Greenblatt cares deeply about his work and conduct. The manner in which he has processed his extraordinary experiences and opportunities to try to place them in a larger context, and one that isn't ego-driven, is rare. Jason Greenblatt seems to have gone into a position which would change so many people, and not for the better, and come out pretty much the same. A smart guy, father, husband, lawyer, 
observant Jewish man, and it sounds like he understood intuitively the importance of retaining his essence. That humility is so rare in public life, particularly in someone who has worked and interacted at such heights and on such important issues. I highly recommend that you read his book, In the Path of Abraham, with that exceptionally long subtitle I read at the top. Greenblatt demystifies the goings-on at the highest levels of diplomacy and helps the reader to understand that listening and making a genuine effort to understand and accommodate is the most important tool to have in one's kit. Greenblatt very freely discusses his personal and professional challenges, highs and lows, with a candor that is rare. Without trust and a real understanding of various positions, he demonstrates through anecdotes, the diplomat, seasoned or neophyte, will never succeed, as Jason Greenblatt did, in what most considered to be an impossible mission. And here we are, three years on, marking the negotiation of the Abraham Accords. Thanks for staying with us to the end. I look forward to seeing what comes in the future. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. It would be great if you would like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Check us out at stateoftelaviv.com on Substack, where you will have access to our full library of content for a limited time only. We are truly independent. We don't just say it, meaning that you will be exposed to views from across the political spectrum at stateoftelaviv.com. Me? I'm all over the place, but generally a solid centrist. State of Tel Aviv is supported by its listeners and readers. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber. Each member makes a huge difference. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm.